Soft as it began by Rubber Soul O2. Chapter 7. They spend the next few days elbow deep in research. The problem is, they're not quite sure what they're looking for. She thought she'd gotten used to this by now, to searching blindly for information, trying to connect dots where there were none, but it still feels like a kick in the gut. The good news is, she's already so familiar with the tales of Beetle Bard from hunting horcruxes that she can practically recite the stories word for word. On the first day, she apparates to the nearest wizarding village in Poland and buys her own copy of the children's book. She'd left the one that Dumbledore had given her at home, as well as a few others that she hasn't bought with her that she thinks might help. She and Malfoy each watch the memory of Harry again, but find nothing new or startling to them about it. Do you know anything about this author? Harry had asked the shopkeeper. Hermione's not surprised that the man hadn't known anything. Beetle the Bard was an infamously enigmatic character in wizarding literature. Not much was known about him, besides the fact that he'd been born in England and had written children's books for a living. Information about his true identity was hard to find, and even harder to corroborate. To verify whether or not it was real, or merely fabricated to make an interesting story. For hours each day, she and Malfoy searched endlessly for leads. They sit together in the study, stationed at their separate desks as they rifle through old tomes and books on wizarding genealogy, biographies of other wizarding authors who may have come into contact with the bard, and old accounts of those who had met him in real life. The man's been dead for centuries, Malfoy had complained on the third day of their search. Even if we find out who he is, we have no idea why the information might have been relevant to Potter. She hated to admit that he was right. They were now on a wild goose chase for two people instead of one, and one question lingered in the back of Hermione's mind as she searched. Why was Harry looking for the true identity of Beetle the Bard? She had started to take small breaks in her research throughout the day to work around the house. After the mouse incident, she decided that it would probably be worth fixing it up a little bit and tidying up the things she could do with magic. She fixed the moth-eaten curtains and deep-cleaned the cushions on the sofa and chair, mending the broken step on the front porch and fastened the mesh back in place on the screen door. She scrubbed the walls and floors, fixed holes and hinges and doorknobs. The magic came easily, through years of helping Molly Weasley with spring cleaning, though sometimes she liked the challenge of scrubbing things with sponges and repairing loose screws with her own hands. Each day that passed had the house looking and feeling more livable, which was both a nice thing and a strange thing. The more it started to feel like some version of home, the more she was reminded of the fact that she shared it with Malfoy. She'd never expected that she would ever grow used to, or even notice the routines Malfoy practised each day, but she had. She knew that he would always be up earlier than her, despite the fact that she was sure that he also stayed up later. She knew that he liked to brew coffee first thing in the morning, and she would always find a hot pot on the counter when she awoke. He ate meals at strange times, though she thinks this is because he's worried she'll tease him for only ever eating some variation of bread with jam or canned soup. He took long showers, so she knew to use the loo before he got in so he wouldn't have to hold it. She knew that she hated not wearing socks, and he had never walked around barefoot, but that he kept slept without them. Only because he hadn't been wearing any the night he heard the mouse in the walls. He liked to read in the afternoons, his long legs splayed out in front of him, ankles crossed, his back leaned against the wall in the window seat. He wore one knit jumper more than others, so she knew it was his favourite. 
but he'd been wearing it less and less as the days got warmer. When he got tired, he had a habit of running his thumb over his bottom lip, and when he was frustrated, he muttered to himself, resting his forehead on the side of his closed fist. It hadn't been until recently that he'd started leaving the warts. The first time, she'd only caught him coming back, emerging in the clearing from the woods, wand in hand. Where did you go? she asked, rinsing the suds from the plate she was washing in the sink. He'd ignored her, no surprise there, and bent down to look in the fridge. If you don't tell me where you go and something happens to you, how am I going to be able to come and save you? He'd sighed, pulled a green apple from the fruit drawer, and shut the fridge door louder than was necessary. I'll be sure to tell the chipmunks to inform you in advance, should they decide to kill me and feast on my flesh. Pratt, Bint, you can tell the chipmunks not to bother. First, you were trying to destroy the bit of privacy I have during my day, so you could know where I was going, and now you're going to let me be eaten alive by dozens of sets of tiny, sharp little teeth. She shoved the plate unceremoniously onto the drying rack, turning to him as he took a bite of the crisp flesh of the apple, his lips shining with the juice as he chewed. You're impossible, you know. And you don't know when to leave things be, Granger. If you must know, I was only taking a walk to clear my head. I sit around all day trying to solve the Potter puzzle for you, and I just need a little time to catch my breath. His tone had been exasperated, his aggravation clear, because how dare she care? and he was going simply because he didn't want to accidentally step on a bear trap and end up being dinner to one instead. Merlin Malfoy, okay, that's all I wanted to know. He had blinked at her, his face contorted by conflicting emotions, vexation and maybe confusion, though it had been hard for her to read. I'll leave a note for you next time I use the loo, so you don't get to worry that I've been sucked up by the toilet. He had lifted an eyebrow at her, making his final point, before striding off to the study, mumbling and muttering under his breath. In a strange way, Hermione had almost grown used to their quarrels, and came to expect it, and sometimes even looked forward to them. The day that Dean stopped by to replenish their food supply and bring them a few books and documents they'd requested, she had noticed that Malfoy had purposely shoved the new jar of marmalade to the very back of the fridge, just so he could place his strawberry jam in its previous easy-to-reach spot. And so began the jam opposition. That's what Hermione secretly liked to call it in her head. She'd hide the jar of strawberry jam from Malfoy, moving the marmalade back to her spot, and joy of entirely juvenile proportions would rise in her chest when she'd hear him begin to rummage through the fridge in search of the jar. Only the next day she would return to find her marmalade had been moved once again, in exchange for the strawberry jam, which he'd stuck there with a very impressive sticking charm. She'd done him one better, applying her own sticking charm to the lid and watching him grunt and sweat trying to open it, his toast cooling on the plate. Neither of them said a word about it to each other, but they both came up with new and creative ways to continue the jam opposition each day. Another week of gruelling research passed, of flipping tirelessly through tomes and registries in the wizarding hospitals in Yorkshire, and they were still coming up empty-handed. Why was this beetle fellow so intent on staying hidden? Was he afraid he'd be stormed by children in public who desperately wanted to sequel to Babbity Rabbity? It's the first time either of them have spoken at least two hours. The sun had gone down hours ago, and Hermione is ready to call it a night and get some much-needed sleep. She did daily miss drinking coffee, 
and had started to catch herself giving Malfoy jealous glares when he took sips of his own fragrant brew as she gripped her dull chamomile tea in the morning. Turning in her chair to look at him, she finds that he is already watching her, grey eyes tired and slightly pink from a day's worth of reading. Children, no, but I do think there were people who believed from the beginning that the Deathly Hallows were real. Who would do anything to become the Master of Death? I think Beedle stayed hidden because he knew what lengths people might go to to have that power, to find him and ask questions. Ironic, really, since it's actually supposed to be a cautionary tale. Draco leans back in his chair, tapping the arm with his thumb. So, if the Hallows were supposedly based on a true story, and Beedle was the first to tell it, how did he come to know of it? Hermione shrugs, tapping the feather end of her quill against her lips in thought. I don't think anyone really knows. Almost everyone just thought it was a children's tale, a fable, a bedtime story. Plenty of people have questioned which parts of the story are real and which the bard made up. The only person I've ever met who believed wholeheartedly in the existence of the Hallows is... Hermione's eyes snapped open, her heart palpitating in excitement and realisation. Her brain stumbles to catch up with her words. Whirring and working so quickly, she thinks Malfoy must be able to actually hear her gears turning. Of course, she breathes, spinning violently in her chair and pulling a piece of parchment towards her. She pushes the heavy tome she had been reading out of the way, making space as she sets out a giddy laugh, almost a giggle. She dips the tip of her quill into the black ink, dripping some as she goes, but she doesn't care. What is it, Granger? She hears Malfoy's footsteps on the wooden floor and feels his towering presence come behind her as she scribbles furiously on the blank parchment, adrenaline shooting into her shaking fingers. Xenophilius Lovegood, Marlin, I've been so daft. If anyone knows anything more about the Hallows or the Bard, it will be him. He's the one who explained it to Ron, Harry and I that spring during the war. That's brilliant, Granger, Malfoy says behind her. His voice is surprisingly light and edged with hope and maybe a little bit of desperation. She doesn't miss the beat her heart skips when he says it, and she reasons it's because it's almost certainly the first compliment he's ever given her. The letter is messy, the handwriting childish, she even, but she doesn't want to waste time rewriting it. She lets it dry before shoving it into an envelope and addressing it to Mr Lovegood, sealing it with wax and looking down upon it as if it's her most brilliant creation. I'll send this off with an owl tonight, she says, standing abruptly and turning so fast she gets a head rush, before accidentally walking headfirst into Malfoy's chest, expelling an oof as she does. He catches her as she makes impact, hands flying up to her arms to steady her, and his fingers are warm and rough on her skin. Oh, I... sorry. She clears her throat, looking up at Malfoy as he releases her and takes a step backwards. He's wearing a black cotton shirt and his hair is falling messily onto his forehead, a stark contrast to how put together he usually looks at work. She hadn't realised he'd been watching her the whole time she'd been writing, had expected him to have moved back to his desk. She meets his eye and when his lips twitch into a grin, she nearly dies of shock. He's wearing a small, amused smirk as he raises an eyebrow at her. Don't hurt yourself, Granger, he chuckles. It's low and throaty, amused and slightly condescending, but it makes the fine hairs on the back of her neck stand up. She straightens, 
tucking a stray curl behind her ear, and tries to banish away the heat on her cheeks. You shouldn't hover over people's shoulders, Malfoy. It's rude. Even though she has taken a step away from her, she can feel the heat of him still in her space, the smell of him that's becoming more and more familiar with every day they spend cooped up in this house. It's also rude to go around hiding people's favourite jam. His voice is more teasing than it is accusatory, playful rather than spiteful. She purses her lips to hide a grin, watching his eyes flash with enjoyment. I have no idea what you're talking about, Malfoy. She blinks her eyelashes innocently at him, waving the letter and turning on her heel. She strides out of the room then, leaving him behind as her face lifts into an uncontrollable smile. Her father used to tell her that when you're waiting for something to happen, if you watch that thing, it would take longer. Don't stand around and watch the pot, Hermione, or it will never boil. And so she's been trying to avoid staring out the window as she waits for an owl to return with Xenophilius Lovegood's response to her. Her impatience has led her to try her hand at fixing the water pressure in the kitchen sink, but she hasn't had any success so far. She thinks she had heard the front door close earlier and assumed that Malfoy had left for his daily walk, so she had taken it as her cue to have her own break from her day of research. The house is eerily quiet without Malfoy around, no soft footsteps or distant fluttering of turning pages. The scent of his shaving cream lingers around the room still from his morning, musky, masculine razor lying beside the sink where he'd left it. He had left the door open a crack as he'd shaved, and she had caught a glimpse of him in the mirror as she walked past, his eyes focused, lips pulled tightly to one side as he ran the blades down his cheek, leaving a clean path through the shaving foam as he did. They had accidentally made eye contact in the mirror, and she had quickly diverted her eyes downwards, quickening her pace towards the study. She doesn't think that he slept much last night, then again she had only noticed because neither had she. She could hear him up in the early hours of the morning, his soft footsteps downstairs, and when she had come down in the morning, another section of the puzzle had been mysteriously finished. Now she feels the repercussions of not enough sleep, of being overworked and under-rested, of her anxieties from waiting for a reply from Mr Lovegood. She wants more than anything to cry, to throw a tantrum over things not going her way, because this stupid sink and a stupid water pressure seem to be resisting all of her efforts to fix it, laughing in her face by dribbling a bit of water from the pipe onto her jeans. Besides that, she hasn't been able to find the marmalade at all today, and she'll be damned if she has to give Malfoy the satisfaction of asking where he's hidden it. She jumps to her feet when she hears the tap at the window, her body immediately forgetting her fatigue and irritation. Her heart pumps wildly in her chest where she sees the owl at the window, a large, elegant eagle owl, a letter tied to its leg above long, sharp talons that clutch the windowsill as it pecks the glass with its beak. Bringing me good news, I hope, she asks the bird after she's tugged open the window, reaching out to untie the string from its leg. The bird cocks its head at her, large, unblinking eyes, staring as she pulls the letter from its grasp. She doesn't waste a moment, flipping over the envelope, eyes scanning the address hungrily. But the letter isn't addressed to her, and the curling scrawl at the front certainly isn't Mr Lovegood's eccentric handwriting. The letter is for Draco, and it's from his mother. When she looks back up at the owl, her heart's sinking with disappointment. She watches the bird study her, as if waiting for her to suddenly turn into its master, 
or for her to go and retrieve Draco. She places the letter down behind her on the table, turning back to the bird and making a shooing motion with her hand. He's not here right now, she tells it, motioning vaguely with her chin towards the forest, as if the bird might understand that he's gone for a walk. I'll give it to him when he gets back. The bird hoots, yellow eyes steadfast on her, and, as if deciding to trust her, flaps its wings and flies away, disappearing over the tree line. She turns to stare down curiously at the envelope, at the elegant handwriting with all of its curls and dips, overcome for a moment by the reminder of Narcissa's existence. She, like most of the wizarding world, knew that Narcissa had spent the last few years under house arrest at Malfoy Manor, bound there while her husband sat in Azkaban and her son walked freely. It didn't take much for Hermione to figure out how close Malfoy was with his mother. She can remember the way they'd embraced each other after the Narcissus trial, the protective look he'd gotten in his eye as they walked past the photographers on the way out of the courtroom, his hand resting high on his mother's back as he led her away from the spectators. Ginny had once told her that if Draco wasn't at work or with Blaze, he was almost certainly with his work mother, spending time with her at the manor or taking care of things she no longer could, meeting at Gringotts over his father's fortune, taking lunch with their family lawyer in Diagon Alley, and filling out paperwork at the Ministry to hire curse-breakers to come to the manor. She hadn't realised until now how much responsibility Malfoy had left behind when he'd agreed to help her. Help Madge. That was the real reason he'd agreed to help, right? For Madge? She spots him when she turns back around to close the window. Here's the crunch of the forest floor under his feet just before she pulls the window down and shuts the latch. He's emerging into the clearing, wand at his side, eyes deep in thought. He got like this a lot, she noticed. Thoughtful, pensive, his eyes far away, mouth pressed into a thin line as his brows drew together slightly, those subtle inflections of Malfoy's facial expressions that gave away his mood if you looked closely enough, if you were familiar enough with him. She thinks she might give anything to wander around in his head, to hear his thoughts spoken out loud was rare, but the eager crumbs she has gotten since they came here have only left her hungry for more. It was frustrating for her. With Harry and Ron, she had always known whether they were happy or sad, worried or tired, frustrated or excited. With Malfoy, she found herself constantly guessing, placing together small pieces of information, moods and expressions, trying to draw a coherent picture of Malfoy when she only had one or two things to go off of. It was her job to solve mysteries like this. She was paid to connect pieces, to put things together in order to figure them out and find the bigger story. But Malfoy was a puzzle, missing too many pieces. This only makes her want to figure him out more. She watches through the window as Malfoy makes his way towards the house, the moss below his feet sinking as he walks. The sun is out and it reflects off of his white blonde hair, all of his features clear and muddled in the broad daylight. This is when he is the biggest puzzle, she thinks, when he becomes clearer, more easily seen. He is easier to digest in the shadows when he isn't under such an illuminating spotlight. The front door swings open and he's there, smelling like fresh spring air and the slight salty musk of his sweat. She can smell him as he moves past her to grab a glass, not unpleasant as he brushes behind her, his body warmed from the sun and exercise. She closes the cupboard under the sink, giving up the idea of ever having steady water pressure here, 
and turns to watch him as he fills his cup with water. Good walk. He lifts the cup to his lips, scorping down the cold liquid as his Adam's apple bobs sharply in the middle of his throat. His grey eyes flick over to hers, the first time he's looked at her today, and he pulls the glass from his lips, ignoring her. By now, he knew how much it bothered her when he chose not to respond, and she sometimes wonders if he does it on purpose. He places his cup in the sink, starts to wash it. She sits down at the table in front of her book, the sting of his silence hot on the back of her neck. She'd promised herself she wouldn't ask, but she knows that she'll get a response if she does. You haven't seen the marmalade around anywhere, have you? His back is too at the sink, so she can't see his face, but she can almost guarantee that he's frowning at her persistence, if not pleased by the fact that she's asked. I don't know, Granger. I think we may have another pest around, because my jam just so happened to disappear the other day as well. His voice is flat, slightly annoyed, and she wonders where the playful version of Malfoy from the other night has gone. She wonders how she got him to emerge in the first place. She is sometimes so desperate to provoke him into arguments just because she needs someone to talk to. They are alone here, after all, and even when they're squabbling it feels better than being lonely. I hate it when you do that, she tells him, her eyes falling back down to her book. In her peripheral, she can see him turn around, resting his back against the counter. When I do what, Granger? When you shut me down like that, you say anything to avoid actually answering my question. She lifts her eyes to look at him, finding him already staring at her. He crosses his arms casually over his chest, raising an eyebrow. Your questions are usually useless or redundant, and I prefer not to waste precious time and energy. Right, you'd rather use that saved time and energy to hide my marmalade. I honestly have no clue what you're talking about, Granger. His tone is stiff, and it irks her more than he's denying it, than it does that he's actually hidden the marmalade. See? You did it again! Not answering my question, and instead saying something vague, looking at me like I've asked you what one plus one is. Malfoy huffs, annoyed as always, and turns around to dry his glass. You act like I'm obligated to respond to every little question or comment you ever have. He sets the glass down in the drying rack placing the dish towel back on its hook. Is that what you're used to, with Weasley and Potter, the only two people in the world who like hearing your voice almost as much as you do? She glares at him, shutting her book with a loud snap. Maybe you'd be more approachable, Malfoy, if you didn't strut around like you're Merlin's gift to the Whistling World, rolling your eyes when someone asks you anything you deem unimportant. Maybe I'm tired of your yapping, Granger, and I'm just trying to discourage you from opening your swatty mouth every time something pops into your mind. Not all of your thoughts or questions are interesting enough to garner conversation. He moves into the living room as she follows, watching him pick up the book he'd left on the coffee table. No wonder you're always so crabby, she spits, crossing her arms as she trails behind him to the chair. He plops down in it, rolling his eyes when he realises she has followed him. You have to deal with all those thoughts you keep to yourself all the time. I'd be a prick too, Malfoy, if I had to suffer the awful fate of being trapped in your head. His eyes snap up to hers. Fierce, dangerous, and fear licks her insides like hot flames. A fear different from other kinds she has felt before. Edged with a strange acceleration of anger she has found she feels only for him. 
better than making everyone else suffer, Granger. Though I'm sure you think that it's a gift every time you speak. A headache waiting to happen, more like. He pulls his eyes downwards, his expression vacant again, as he opens the book and begins to read. Just like he'd do at the office, ignoring her and all of his work, eyes glued to his book as if it's all that exists in the world. She grinds her teeth together, her fingers itching with angry energy. You're... you are... completely and utterly insufferable! He raises an eyebrow, not bothering to look up. His hair, which she swears has gotten longer since they've been here, falls over his forehead. A feathery light, one piece sticking to the sweat at his temple from his walk. She stands, waiting, watching him, wanting him to get angry, respond to her, anything to get his attention back once more. She hates it when he's quiet, the way he would always win the argument by shutting her down, by not acknowledging that she was one to have the last word. It was absolutely infuriating to be left wanting more from him, even when more meant insults or dry, sarcastic remarks. Part of her isn't even sure she really hates him any more. They've come to a weird stage in their relationship in which they tolerate each other, in which yelling back and forth is more comfortable than thick silences. Silences were harder because they called for filling the gaps. They called for Hermione to wonder what he was thinking and why his eyes would flick over to her while she passed him in the living room and not knowing exactly how he was feeling about her in the moment. At least when they argued, she knew that he was exasperated with her. She was more comfortable with knowing that Malfoy was thinking about her than not knowing at all. She had gotten carried away before trying to fill the gaps and choose your thoughts about what he might think about the way she looked when she woke up the way his eyes would linger on her legs when she wore jeans, wondering whether he hated them or was intrigued by them. She would snap herself out of it, wondering why she cared anyway, why she was so intent on filling the silence with curiosity about Malfoy's impression of her. She hated that she wondered in the first place. She watches him flip the page, ignoring her completely, before remembering the owl that had come to bring the letter moments before his return. A letter arrived for you. His head snaps up, eyes darting behind her to the kitchen. You didn't think to mention that before, Granger. She huffs, wanting to argue, but decides to leave it be. She's not sure if the letter carries good or bad news, and she doesn't feel like adding any more fuel to a potential fire. He stands easily, discarding the book onto the chair behind him and strolling past her into the kitchen. She watches him pick up the letter, scanning the front before ripping the wax seal off and pulling out neatly folded pieces of parchment. She tries not to watch him as he reads, tries not to be nosy, because she knows it gets on his nerves the most, and really she has no place asking questions about his personal life. Instead, she sits on the edge of the sofa, making herself look busy by pushing around a small cardboard puzzle piece. She can't see him with her back turned like this, but she hears the soft wrinkle of the parchment, the legs of a chair against the floor as he sits. It's a few silent minutes before he appears in front of her again, tucking something into the pages of his book, the letter, she guesses, before sitting down again and finding his place in the novel once more. She presses her thumb against two puzzle pieces, fitting them together before sliding them over the top corner where they belong. Everything all right? Her pulse picks up speed as she asks, because she wasn't going to. 
but it sort of just slipped out. She doesn't look over at him, scared of the look she'll find if she does, because that was certainly not minding her own business. And he hated when she asked questions that had nothing to do with her. She's almost sure he's going to ignore her anyway. He likes to do that when she asks a question of this nature. It surprises her when he speaks, after a beat of silence. Just Mum checking in. She wants to send a cake because it's our tradition, but I think it might be too late to write back and tell her that that's ludicrous. She looks up at him, finds his eyes watching her hands on the puzzle pieces. A cake? It's my birthday, Granger. No need to sing or anything. So for Merlin's sake, don't get any ideas. Guilt floods through her. She realises she's spent the day giving him the silent treatment for the loss of marmalade, and the last few minutes arguing with him and telling him how awful he was. Not that he didn't deserve it, the Pratt, but if she'd known it was his birthday, she might have given him a bit of a break. Oh. They met eyes, and he raises two eyebrows lazily at her, leaning back in the chair as he scratches his jaw, looking away and back down to his book. I... Uh, happy birthday, Malfoy. I'm sorry I yelled at you for hiding the marmalade, but I really can't find it this time, and... He glares at her. Salazar's right tit, Granger. I didn't move your marmalade. Endless. And we can please forget about the birthday thing. It's not a big deal. He makes a show of looking back at his book, finding his spot once more and holding it close to his face than necessary. She nods, throwing her hands up in fake surrender. Fine. Great. Wonderful. She debates over whether it's a good idea, long enough for the food to grow cold. She hadn't meant to do it. She'd actually caught herself in the process of making extra, finding herself adding another potato to the water, making more than she knew she would end up eating. What was the harm in making him a bit of extra supper? It was his birthday, and he had to be getting sick of jam and muffins by now. If she's being logistical about it, he was also probably lacking a myriad of vitamins and nutrients from his jam-filled diet. So what if she made him a bit extra for him? It didn't mean anything, just that she had enough of a heart not to let him eat toast on his birthday. She was tired of watching him in the kitchen, opening cans of soup to dump in a pot, trying to add little things here or there to make it more palatable. If she was already cooking, why not cook a bit extra for him too? She stares at the plate, contemplating the best way to offer it to him. He was probably going to be stubborn, no matter what, she knows, so she has to aim for casualness and difference. She thinks about bringing it straight to him in his room, but knows right away that that's too far. She pictures the sneer he'd give her, pictures herself looking like the image of a perfect housewife and swallows the bar that rises in her throat. There was a fine line between making extra food and delivering it to him as if it were room service. The idea of serving him like a house elf repulses her. Should she leave it out on the table? Let him find it? She pulls a fork and knife from the cutlery drawer and places them beside the fixed plate, shakes her head and clasps a palm to her forehead. If she made a big deal of this, even in her head, Malfoy would know. He always seemed to read her when she did this, knowing right away that she was thinking, growing vexed over how much she would overthink things. She tosses the cutlery back into the drawer and shoves the plate into the fridge. Roast chicken and potatoes, buttered carrots and gravy. 
It was the meal her mother used to make every year on her own birthday. She started cooking it without even thinking, her arms and legs moving as if they were a puppet controlled by strings, fingers chopping potatoes without her permission, sprinkling herbs over the chicken as if she'd been programmed to do so. You don't cook dinner for someone you hate. And this is a hard pill for her to swallow. She stands around in the kitchen for another few minutes, idly straightening things that are already tidy, wiping every spot of water off the counter, putting off what she knows she has to do next. She doesn't know why she's so nervous, only that doing nice things for one another was new territory in their relationship. But even Pratt's deserve nice birthdays. She could swallow her pride for tonight, if only to make up their earlier shouting match. She urges herself to move, climbing the stairs and shuffling quietly to his door. She takes a ragged breath in, raising her fist and knocking once, twice, three times. Come in. She swallows, blindly searching for the doorknob with her hand and twisting, pushing the creaky door open. Malfoy sits on his bed. On top of the covers with his black against the wall behind him, propped up with a single pillow near his lower back, his legs are stretched out in front of him, one ankle crossed lazily over the other, his sock-clad feet nearly reaching the end of the bed. She'd almost forgotten how tall he really is, and wonders if he even fits in the bed when he goes to sleep. He's grasping the book from earlier, having made quite a big dent in it since this afternoon, but his eyes are on her as she takes a shaky step over the threshold and into the room. It's similar to hers, the same size, a desk against the far wall, his trunk under the window. Evening light streams through the glass, soft colours of the sunset against the white paint on the opposite wall, casting the entire room in an orange glow. Everything is soft, so soft and warm, except for Malfoy, who stands out against it like a sore thumb. Like a carved marble statue, all whites and greys and blacks, sharp angles, hardened, something fierce to look at. Her stomach does a strange flip as she meets his eye, so she shoves it away with hard to swallow. He looks relaxed, which is something she can't often say, and even her presence in his personal space hasn't caused any of his usual rigidness in his spine, any creep of his shoulders up towards his ears. Granger? A statement rather than any sort of warm greeting, a formality. She takes one more step her eyes falling onto his desk, noting a messy collection of parchment covering it in his handwriting. She wonders what he's been writing about, since for a number of days now they've been sitting around doing research, and wonders how his notes compare to her own. Madge was probably not too impressed with the lack of excitement in the story in the past few weeks, but they're getting close. Have you eaten? The words fall from her lips before she decides to say them. Unbidden, but unrealing, just as she's hoped. Malfoy's brow twitches, and he sets the book face down over his thigh, tilting his chin down to look at her with a funny expression. Granger, if this is about the marmalade, it's not, she cuts him off, shaking her head. I just wanted because I made a bit extra. Too much for me to eat on my own. There's a pause, a beat of silence, his eyes so intense on her, she almost wonders if he can see right through her. Did you? He raises a brow. She's almost shocked when his lips twitch into the shadow of an amused smirk, his thumb tapping away at the fabric of his joggers over his right knee. 
She nods, keeping her expression neutral and caring. Yes, so if you'd like something to eat, there's a place in the fridge. It won't be good tomorrow, and I hate wasting things. He watches her intently, his eyes skimming her face with a curious expression, relaxed but slightly mystified, as if he's not quite sure what to make of her. All right, he replies, a slow nod dipping his chin. His expression falls back to its usual blank slate, flipping over his book and picking it up to read again, apparently dismissing her. I never thought to ask who's taking care of your mother while you're gone. She's not sure why she doesn't just leave, and why she can't just let things be. There is something about his calm, about the light turning from orange to pink, about the way the room smells warm and familiar, that draws her in more. It's quiet, the air too empty without conversation. It's enough to make her want to fill that emptiness with thoughts, to wonder what he's like when he's alone, not hating her. In the emptiness, she wonders, but the wondering is dangerous. She thinks she's caught glimpses of him like this before, the night with the mouse, again when she's crashed into him into the study. Why she chases this side of him, she's not sure. She's comfortable keeping them in the bubble she's created, comfortable in the categories they stand in, apart, different. Malfoy in one slot, her in another, their opposition the drawn line that's keeping them there. But what might happen if the line became blurred? What happens in those moments where their opposition fades into something more like familiarity? When Malfoy chuckles at her instead of frowning? Why is she afraid to find out? Why does she want to, anyway? Malfoy looks up at her again, his expression stony. My mother isn't a child, Granger. She's very capable of taking care of herself. I know. I, I meant more keeping her company. He eyes her, slightly suspicious, but relents anyway. Blaze and I made arrangements before I left. He'll be dropping by most days to check in, see what she needs, stick around for tea. The job is easy enough if you don't mind having your ear chattered off. I'm sure Blaze is handling it well enough. Hermione can't help but smile, knowing that Blaze was the perfect person to chat to, giving as easily as he could take. Your mother is talkative, then. Draco shrugs a shoulder, folding his arms in front of his chest as he pulls in a heavy breath. It's certainly easier to get her to start than it is to get her to stop. Mm, she hums, folding her fingers together in front of her. I did wonder why it is I can never get you to shut up. His eyes flush with something she might call mischief if she didn't know him the way she does, and he lets out a low, easy laugh. Actually laughs at her. She almost falls over at the sound of it. Funny. Any more questions for me, Granger? Or can I get back to my book? And just like that, the lines are merged solidly back into place, reminding her of the dangers of crossing them. Right. She dips her head at him in goodbye turning to leave as he shifts his book once more. She shuts the door as quietly as she can, filling his eyes on her the entire time until it closes fully. She spends the rest of the evening in her room writing, notes about their week of research and memories of Harry. She finds it helps to remember him when she jots things down in detail. Bits and pieces she thinks she has forgotten seem to come to the foreground when she writes, 
Little things, trivial details, like the blue jumper he'd worn to Hogsmeade once in six year, or the story he'd told her at the Three Broomsticks about McLagan Quidditch practice. Sometimes these memories start to feel like dreams, like something she might have made up. Sometimes she even wonders if that's what she's doing, if these bits and pieces she's writing aren't memories at all, but stories she's invented to fill in gaps of time, things that she's lost. Can you miss someone so much that you begin to turn them into a character, a story, rather than a real friend? Was she doing Harry an injustice by turning him into words? She sets her quill down an hour or so after the sun sets, her hand cramping a thin stack of parchment on her desk, and pulls on her sleep clothes. She slides her feet into slippers and shuffles her way over to the door, tugging it open only to come face to face with Malfoy, his fist raised in a preemptive knock, hovering in the air where the wooden door should be. He looks surprised, caught off guard, like he might have been there for a while debating whether or not to knock at all. His grey eyes are wide, but his expression settles quickly. Malfoy, everything all right? He looks at her pyjamas, at her hair drawn on top of her head, and he clears his throat. <clears throat> Granger, I, uh, I ate that dinner that you left. She rests her hand against the doorframe, meeting his eyes as they skitter to hers, his jaw tense. Oh, all right. She waits, wondering if he meant to tell her anything else, but he only turns to look down the hall towards his door as if planning his escape. I'm just going to brush my teeth. She signals behind him, giving him an easy way out. Wondering why he had been planning on knocking in the first place. Draco nods, stepping aside to let her out, his eyes trained thoughtfully on her. She shuts her door behind her and walks to the stairs when his voice stops her again. It wasn't terrible, Granger. The dinner. She pauses at the first step, trying to contain a grin. When she turns her head over her shoulder to look at him, he has returned to his normal self, assured, confident. Thanks, Malfoy. Happy birthday. He dips his head at her before turning on his heel, the sound of his door shutting quietly enough to get her moving again. It was as close to a thank you as she was going to get, not that she needed or expected it, but it does say something inside her that feels dangerous, maybe slightly forbidden. Hermione brushes her teeth, thinking once more about lines, experimenting with moving and erasing them in her mind, before drawing them sharply, permanently once more. Mm -hmm.